You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is Doug Lynham, and you are listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. Why do you make the money decisions you make? It is a question I've often asked myself. I remember after my dad died, my mother clung to the narrative of scarcity. She imagined selling our two-story, four-bedroom house and moving into a small condo to pay for her three boys' college educations. It, of course, never came to fruition. Her business became a huge success, and then she remarried. We were wealthy for all intents and purposes. But like my guest today, wealth didn't protect me from money trauma. It took years to learn how to spend again. I, like my mother, had the move into the condo mentality, a relatively unhealthy coexistence that begs an important question for all of you today. How is your relationship with money? If you were in therapy with your money, what would it say to you and what would you say to it? Doug Lynham grew up in a wealthy family where money was abundant but weaponized. Rebelling against the world of materialism, he first joined the Marine Corps but then found a higher calling and became a Benedictine month for 20 years. When the monastery went bankrupt, he learned the lesson that extreme poverty was as painful as materialism was destructive. Doug Lynham, welcome to Earn and Invest. What does being poor do to people in modern day society? How does that affect our quality of life and relate to finances? Wow. Well, Doc G, thanks for having me on your on your show here. One of the things I've discovered over the years is that poverty is the single best predictor of your mortality, that your longevity and lifespan is directly correlated to your socioeconomic status. And the research that we've that's come out in the past decade or so has shown that your again, your socioeconomic status has a a bitter, bigger predictor of your overall life satisfaction than your 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 job satisfaction, your relationship stability, and a whole host of other factors. That if you are poor, the stress that that puts on you and the trauma that that inflicts on people is so overwhelming that you don't have a lot of cognitive space for anything else than trying to figure out how you're going to manage the money struggles and stresses of the day. And the stress of being poor, that then I think leads to all kinds of other problems like addictions, alcoholism, domestic violence, child abuse. All of these things increase as your as poverty increases. And I think they are, they are 
undeniably directly correlated. So being poor is stressful and, and it's, it's really a, a kind of a crucifixion that no one should have to go through if possible. I have to admit, I asked that question kind of to set you up because as in the introduction, I said both you and I weren't in the midst of poverty as we grew up. And I think most people listening right now take it pretty much as a truth that being poor is stressful and makes life more difficult. On the other hand, I want to flip the conversation around. You and I both came from wealth. On the other hand, that didn't stop us from having a traumatic relationship with money. Talk to me about your financial modeling that you received from your parents as a kid. <laughs> yeah, well, so um, you know, my dad was a CEO of a you know moderately sized corporation. My parents divorced when I was about seven. And they weaponized money. Money was the tool they used to get revenge on each other. And they kind of used the kids as, as pawns in this kind of 3D chess game they were playing to try to get back at each other. And, and so if I would go to my mom and say, you know, I need something, new clothes, whatever it would be, she would play poor and say, well, we're broke. Go ask your dad. He has all the money. And then I go to my dad and say, hey, dad, can I have some new shoes or whatever I want? Can I get this or that? And he'd say, well, I'm broke. I gave all my money to your mom. Go ask her. And so there's a kind of gaslighting going on. And when you're a young child, you believe it. So I actually believed the lies that we were financially insecure. So I, I, I have this really strong memory of it's a stupid kind of little anecdote, but I remember going to a Baskin Robbins with my mom and we were ordering ice cream. And you know, you go to the counter, you get your ice cream, got my cone. And I wouldn't lick the ice cream cone until I saw her pay for it. Because mm. I wasn't sure if I would have to give the ice cream back. Like, do we really have enough money for ice cream? Is that something we can really do? And all these little, it's just, it was just tense. Every time anything had to be bought for us, it felt like I was a burden on them. And like, it was a problem. And then, you know, you get a little older and you kind of start to see through the game and it, it got really painful because there was plenty of money for new cars, big houses, fancy vacations for themselves for the next, my dad would have girlfriends every six months, new one, and they got whatever they wanted, you know, blavish with Lord knows what. And meanwhile, you, you say, well, I need anything. And you, and you, and you was like, Nope, no, no, we're broke. No money here. Go look somewhere else. And so over time that developed a lot of money trauma and a very, very unhealthy relationship to money. So in medicine, I'm a doctor, we talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. When we're talking about how trauma affects our life subsequently, you've reimagined the acronym. Talk about your PTSD and what type of behaviors did it lead to? Oh, I think I call it a payment traumatic stress disorder. <laughs> you know, and so it was, you know, money just caused me so much heartache in my life. I mean, and then you have this unhealthy relationship to money as a kid in your family. And that, then you take that with you out into life and then all kinds of, you know, bad financial decisions that I went on, went on to make. And so I think for me, that trauma, that money trauma as a kid, it, it kind of got mixed up with, with religion. So when you bring religion and money together, things get even weirder. And so for me, I, I believe St. Paul when he said that, you know, the love of money is the root of all evil. And so that, because it was such a source of so much tension and anxiety, then I fled. I got very avoidant of money. And so I had this very, just, I didn't want anything to do with it. I hated it. I want to get away from it as much as possible. 
And so I ran off and one of the reasons I ran off and joined a monastery and took a vow of poverty. It was also to piss my parents off. That was <laughs> that was also part of the reason. <laughs> it's like what's gonna be his opposite? What get from my parents' values and all my brothers, we all reacted in different, very, very um avoidant ways towards money. You know, my older brother went off and joined a grunge band, my twin brother ran off and the woods and lived the hippie commune life and it's like well what could i do to rebel you know these two roles were taken so i you know <laughs> i went off and and, and did the marine and the in the, in the monastery thing so so that's kind of a, a quick snapshot i want to talk in a moment about money avoidance and the dichotomy between money attachment versus money avoidance because i think they're the ways in which money trauma plays out but before we get there what you're making very clear is that that money trauma is generational yeah and were you ever able to go back and see the antecedents that even went before your parents and maybe in their parents and where they got some of these scripts that they eventually passed down to you? Yeah, that's a great question. So it took me a long time to kind of figure it out. Vulnerability, honesty, and openness were not traits I grew up around. And so it took me a couple of decades to kind of really dig behind it and learn my parents' story. But what I realized is my my parents grew up in real poverty. Like, you know, my dad had to go out and you know, in the old days, you would get these glass soda bottles and you could collect them and then take them back to the grocery store and get five cents. They would redeem the bottles. And he'd have to have to go out and do that after school, you know, a lot of times every week to get enough money so his family could could pay for dinner that night. Like that's how they paid their grocery bills. So that that kind of growing up in that in that money anxious kind of way, their money trauma then made them extremely anxious. And then it wasn't so much that they were greedy or that they were selfish. It was that they were themselves traumatized and and they kind of clung to money like it was, you know, like the the last the last life preserver on a sinking ship. It was just this they were unconscious of these wounds inside themselves. And then that got passed down, I think, to their children in in very, you know, in a different way. But that that was really the root of I think of of their money anxiety. I find it interesting. And let's jump into this dichotomy, these money personality types. And two big ones that we often talk about are money attachment versus money avoidance. You mentioned that you and your siblings were quite on the money avoidance side. On the other hand, it sounds like your parents were on the money attachment side. Why do you think you all fell to money avoidance? Was it just as simply as we don't want to be our parents or was there something more to it? Well, we don't. Well, that was number one. I don't, we don't want to be our parents. <laughs> But I think it was also because for me, I'll just speak to myself. I can't, I can't talk to my siblings, but it just brought up so much shame. Like mm-hmm. I, I felt like I was a burden. I felt ashamed to even exist at times. Like everything that they, every, because they were so attached to money, every time they had to spend something on us, it hurt them. Like you could feel the tension and they were just sort of tight fisted about everything, you know, like even paying for college was hard. It, it was, like there shouldn't, it shouldn't have been hard. There was, there was, um, I actually snuck in and saw my parents' tax returns once and like there was a lot of money going around and college should have been a snap, you know, those sorts of things. Yeah. There was just so much shame around money for me. And I, I still carry that a little bit. It's not a hundred percent gone. I, I, I am aware of it. I'm mindful of it, but, um, I think that for me was the root of the money avoidance. 
I'm going to jump in a moment to where you went with college and your career path. But before I do, I just have to ask, was there ever any reconciliation with your parents? I mean, was there ever a come to Jesus where you could sit down with them and say, hey, you know, this is what this felt like. Were you aware of your behaviors and maybe your own issues about money and how they affect your life? Somewhat. With my mom, yes. We've really reconciled really, really well. It's been a very healing, really in the past, just, I would say three years. The book I wrote from Monk to Money Manager helped, you know, when when my parents read the book, it was like, okay, it was all my cards were on the table. When I did the TEDx talk, you know, then my mom saw it. She cried a lot, but understood, you know, know, but my dad, no, we never really reconciled. That didn't... He he passed before that, that I really had that opportunity. So let's talk about your pathway. I'm interested. You grew up, obviously, with this money trauma. You developed a somewhat avoidant personality type when it came to it. You didn't want to have money. You didn't want to think about money, certainly. Yeah. Tell us about the path that led to the Marines. Was one directly connected to the other? A little bit. I think with the Marines, what I was hoping, I was, you know, I was kind of lost as a kid, you know, I, the not a lot of direction, not a lot of guidance from my from my parents in terms of, and I was looking for meaning. I was looking for community, direction, purpose, challenge. I think the Marines were more because I felt so insecure physically. I grew up kind of as the runt in the family, and you know I kind of got picked on by my brothers and my dad. Always, my dad was this big jock. He was like six three, big football player in college. I'm short, you know. I'm like, you know, five, nine, you know, kind of an ectomorph body type. And, (laughs) you know, it just, there was this shame even in in just my, my physicality. And so the Marines, I think were in part to prove I was a real man, but also because I thought, well, I don't have to worry too much about money there either. Like there's going to be money problems, but everything's kind of taken care of. I don't have to, I didn't want to be in the corporate world. I didn't want to, I didn't know what, where I was to go. And so that felt like, all I kind of saw, I checked all the boxes at the time. And then, it, then there were problems there too. So obviously. Let's talk about some of those problems. I'm thinking about my experience. My father died when I was seven and those college years for me and right after college were really years of growth where I came to terms with having lost a father, what that meant to me and, and maybe reliving and working through some of that trauma I'm wondering how the armed forces are as a place to work through life trauma. Because obviously you would have this money trauma. It was affecting you and the way you were making decisions. Talk about being in the armed services and and having some of those life issues. Well, you know, I didn't stay that long. So so it's a little, you know, I, di- I, I have to be honest and just tell people, you know, I didn't go active duties. So I, I went to Marine Corps officer candidate school. I graduated near the top of my class, really loved it. But then for me, what I realized is there were, you know, there are two, two drugs that don't go well together, which is, you know, unresolved anger and an M16. Like those two things just didn't, <laughs> not, not good together. Didn't, <laughs> didn't mesh. So I love the Marines in the sense that I love the discipline. They really helped, they really helped me get my act together in, in some core ways because they break you down, they build you back up. And, and some of that's good, some of it's bad. But for me, it was mostly good, except I just had this. You know, I kind of had this realization that you know, and the, the Marines are really kind of I, I, what I love about the Marines is they're very blunt. I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm saying anything that w- would would be shocking to a Marine, which is like you're, you're trained to kill people, and, and in a way you're trained to enjoy it. And that for me, that that's where I, I kind of hit a hard wall. And 
it was one thing to defend your country. It's one thing to to be of service. It's another thing to enjoy the process of going after your enemy in a real kind of gladiatorial mentality. And so, so anyway, that that was part of the reason. And and then I, I had a good mentor and friend who was in Vietnam, and he kind of pulled me aside and said, "Hey, read these books, learn about the history, know the history of our country really well when it comes to military conflict." And you kind of your eyes get open, and you're like, "Well, mate." I don't think we'll do Vietnam again was my thought. There's no way we're going to repeat that mistake. But I had this nagging voice like, well, maybe, maybe not. And was kind of, and of course, then Iraq happened. So I, I, you know, at any rate, so that, that was also part of my spiritual awakening, looking to go in the monastery. So long story, but mm-hmm. that was, that was the path. You know, it's interesting. I totally see that you entered the Marines. You had some unresolved issues. You realized that that, kind of gladiatorial look at fighting was not for you. But that's quite a different thing than going into a Benedictine monastery. Like, how, how did you make that emotional switch? Because you're going from like professional fighter slash killer to something very different when you enter a monastery. How did your brain make that jump? Well, I, there's actually some really strong similarities. I mean, it, you what I loved about the Marines was the brotherhood, the camaraderie, mm-hmm. esprit de corps, direction, discipline, meaning, higher purpose, being of service. So the, so they they had all of those things in common. And it felt to me like, well, if I'm going to leave the Marines, which I loved, really did, what could be a higher calling? Like, what what's the next? How could I how could I level up a little bit in my in my quest for for meaning? And you know, I, my my earliest memories were always around this spiritual quest that that was a real through line for my life as well. And so I felt like if I was going to find the meaning and find God, however you wanted to find that, um, where else could I do that better than in a monastery? So that was part of it. That was, that was, that was, and also the kind of the existential moral dilemmas I faced with the killing side of the Marines, it kind of kicked me hard and, and, Maybe, maybe I would say this: the the problem I had with the Marines is I, and I, I don't hope this isn't too dark, but I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed learning how to kill people. Yeah. And when you face that in yourself, it wasn't it wasn't the Marines weren't the problem. It was me. I was the problem. Like I I, I resonated with that. Like I could very easily get out there and and blow things up and and like that. And when you see that, there was a darkness in me that I felt I needed to address and and find a way to resolve. Does that, does that make sense? It does. And, and what I clearly see is a straight line of a spiritual need that you had right. and becoming part of this monastery filled that need. It also filled another need that you might not have been as conscious about. Talk about the vow of poverty and, and for <laughs> someone who is money avoidant, how that yeah. also was particularly comfortable for you. Yeah, well, that was a, b- a big part of it. Like, okay, I'm going to join the monastery, and all my take about poverty, you're out, you're out of the game, you're out, out of the system, and and that was really going to be awesome for me. I thought that would be the perfect way to permanently avoid ever having to deal with money. And of course, ironically, I ended up having to deal with it even more because one of the problems is that. I ended up in a community where everybody hated money as much as I did. We were all deeply money avoidant. And then when you're trying to run a community like that, it, it of course, it didn't work very well. And eventually, pretty quickly, actually, the monastery ended up going bankrupt. And that kind of began my career into finance. And so there was 
not just there was some just outright incompetence because we we didn't know what we were doing. None of us were financially literate, and and then over time, so many issues piled up. But I realized that you know, pray for, the, for we would do all kinds <laughs> of stuff. Like, let's, let's pray for this. We'll pray for the money problems to get solved. We'll we'll meditate on this. We will somehow God will provide, right? Because we thought we were doing good work in the world. We were we were living life of love and service. And somehow it was all going to work out. And that's just not how the game goes. God's not going to work a miracle to solve a problem that you have the power to fix. Like we, we had the power to fix this and we just weren't taking any responsibility. So there was a com- complete abdication of personal responsibility and financial responsibility because of our money avoidance. And and it got so bad that there was really no choice, but somebody had to step in and, and figure it out. And by a weird twist of fate, it fell on my shoulders. No one else wanted to take it on, but it was case of the blind leading the broke. I, I, I knew nothing about what I was doing, but you know the bar was set pretty low. Let's talk about the monastery as a microcosm. I mean, I feel like we have this dichotomy, right? You can either be spiritual or you can be wealthy, but you can't per se be both. Was it challenging for you to bump up against that and realize, no, I can actually be a good financial advisor to this monastery, I can manage our finances in a way in such that we prosper. And that doesn't take away from our holiness or our spirituality. And and talk about how, how you think that plays out in the world outside of somewhere like a monastery. Yeah. I mean, I, I could talk about that for hours. Um, <laughs> I would just say there was, a, there was this moment, I'll give you one story that kind of set everything up, is that there was one brother in the community who actually refused to touch money at all for any reason. Like he thought it polluted the soul. Like if I, and so, you know, he wouldn't touch cash. He wouldn't touch credit cards, debit cards he made. And what I realized is over time, he became increasingly sort of self-righteous about it. Like that fed his ego more than anything else. And if you really did believe that kind of crazy mentality that money is going to pollute you by even touching it or having to deal with it, well, what that meant is it pushed all of that onto the rest of us, me in particular. And it's like, well, now I, I have to deal with it more because you don't want to deal with it at all. We're having all this stress and all these problems and and because you don't want to face this stuff. And how is that spiritual or kind? It's not very loving. And he became increasingly sort of self-righteous and judgmental. And it's like the what I realized is that poverty can feed your ego just as much as wealth. Like it, both are ego traps either way, because you think you're better than everybody else because you either have a lot of money like my dad, or because you don't have any money or you don't touch it like this other brother. So both are traps. And so the ego will, will grab onto anything if, if it's allowed to, to, to prop itself up. And so it's actually, <laughs> can be even the vow of poverty can be anti-spiritual. And then what I realized is that as the finances of the monastery got better, we were able to be of more service to people. We were able to be more loving, more generous, more kind. And, and so now we have all these tools in our toolkit because there's money in the bank. And and it's like, well, this is an awesome superpower that we have. Money is amazing. Like it's great. Like if you've got it and you know how to use it effectively. There's no better tool for relieving suffering than money in so many ways. And so, but it has to be deployed ethically and responsibly. So that's sort of the path 
that I, this sort of awakening I had, like I was wrong to think that money and spirituality are antithetical. There's just simply no correlation between your socioeconomic status and your spirituality. Hundred percent. Like I, I know billionaires who are amazingly kind and doing amazing things in the world with their wealth, more than monks in a monastery. So, and vice versa. Like it, it, it goes both ways. Like what the highest contemplative traditions have been trying to teach us is what we call non-dualistic thinking. Is this idea that it's black or white? That there's these hard lines and we get very dualistic around money to think that there's this way or that way it's, it's poverty is bad is good wealth is bad or or flip it right either one is a dualistic trap and either one will feed your ego if you allow it We are talking to Doug Lynham. He went from marine to monastery to money manager. We're talking money trauma today. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later, we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing. And there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals. And let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave and two minutes later... You have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, everybody. I am so excited to let you know that I will be in San Diego Thursday, October 6th. And from 4 to 7 p.m., we're going to have a book launch event at BJ's Restaurant and Brew House. That is in San Diego, California. You can sign up for this event. It's a book launch party, but all Earn and Investors are welcome to come, whether you've read the book or not. Of course, there will be books to be purchased, and I'd be happy to sign them for you there. Also, if you happen to be attending the Camp Phi event, which is going to be Camp Phi Southwest, that's October 7th through 10th in Julian, California, which is right down the way from San Diego. I love to see all of you. Check us out. Go to earnandinvest.com slash San Diego. Again, that's earnandinvest.com slash San Diego to sign up to hang out with me at BJ's for our book launch event. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Doug Lynham. He grew up in a wealthy family where money was abundant but weaponized. Rebelling against the world of materialism, he first joined the Marine Corps but then found a higher calling and became a Benedictine monk for 20 years. When the monastery went bankrupt, he learned the lesson that extreme poverty was as painful as materialism was destructive. 
Doug, so we followed your story to the point that you joined the monastery. The monastery started having economic problems. It ended up being on your shoulders to manage the money, which you did very successfully. Why leave the monastery? Why didn't why wasn't that the end of the story? And he managed the monastery's money and did good for the community and everyone was happily ever lived happily ever after. Oh, well, th- that things can get a little dark there too. But essentially the monastery the simple answer is I wasn't growing spiritually anymore. I also realized I could do more good outside the monastery than inside. Frankly, you know, when I joined the monastery, I was 22 and then by the time I was 42, 20 years later, I God, it's it's a hard question to answer I, with with some with some integrity and honesty, but I would say that money was a big problem. I could I could solve the balance sheet for the monastery. What I couldn't do was solve what I call the money monsters that were roaming the halls. Like I all the other brothers were 30 years older than I was at the time. And they still kind of treated me like I was 22 when I was in my 40s. And there was a sort of, it's very hierarchical. It's its very rigid in its authority structure. And even av- after I fixed the balance sheet, there was still a lot of, res- that actually in some ways even created other resentments. Like it, it was kind of like in their face, like maybe you were wrong about this and not really wanting to face their money trauma and their money issues it kind of put it right up in front of them and and they didn't want to look at it so i got a lot of flack in a lot of ways like i was i was the bad guy for always worrying about thinking about money i was unspiritual for learning all about i, I just got curious i got so curious about economics i got so curious about finance that i i was reading it's, why aren't you reading you know this book on saints why are you reading this book on macroeconomic theory I'm like well because this is a cool way to help the world and 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 I couldn't reconcile those things in the monastery any longer and I realized I could really help people and what I was doing what really opened my eyes is when monastery guests would come and look for help and because I was the youngest monk I wasn't really encouraged to give spiritual advice it's like you leave that to the prior you leave that to the senior monks and you just be of service you you know, do the dishes and cook the meals and whatever. But what I realized is that rather than spiritual advice, what I would say 80% of the guests really needed was financial advice because hmm. behind most of their spiritual problems and struggles was a financial problem. It was either the direct cause of their spiritual problem or it was a byproduct. You know, somebody dies, right? That's a spiritual crisis, but then there's an estate to probate and there's insurance and there's bills and like, Someone needs to sit down and help you make a budget. Like we could pray, that's great, but a budget actually is going to probably be more effective. And so doing that over and over and over and over again and realizing I had a talent and and seeing people transform because I helped them with their money problems, I was like, well, that's what I'm called to do. This is this is a real calling. And and I couldn't do it to the extent I I wanted to. And eventually that was what pulled me out. As I listen to your story, I can't help but thinking when you're in the midst of trauma and you move towards avoidance, what you seek most of all is hierarchy and boundaries. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you made this emotional transformation while you were there. 
And once you started getting over that trauma, you wanted the exact opposite. You wanted freedom and expansiveness. Right. And therefore had, in a sense, grown out of of the monastery. I feel like, though, having 20 years in the monastery gave you some insight that your average money manager doesn't have. So talk about the spiritual and the divine when it comes to dealing with our money, because I feel like as a manager, it must have been one of those things you really bring to the table that other people don't have. The highest spiritual insights sound rather glib when you say them, but when you really experience them on the on a deep level, you know. But to understand, for me, the, one of the biggest insights is that God, the divine, is it's everywhere. It's in everyone, and it's in everything, and that includes our financial life. Like you can't compartmentalize God. You can't just say, "Well, God's over here and not there." That's just silly. And and to realize that you can use your financial life as a, it's perhaps the best tool you have to be of service in the world. So why don't you embrace that? And so when, when clients come and they, and they're struggling with, with their finances, it's like, okay, how do we make this align with your values? How do we help you? Or, you know, we, my firm, we, it's called shameless plug. I am a partner at Longview Asset Management in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Feel free to reach out. At any rate, we only do environmentally and socially responsible investing. So that's part of the ethics of of what I, what I think our firm brings and I bring. But it, I think when you connect people with their values, you know, I, I'm not there to put my values on people, but to help them tease out what theirs, what their values are. And now how are we managing your money in alignment with what you you hold dear? And that I think really helps people because most people, when they hire an investment advisor, it's because they have money avoidance, right? They, they were outsourcing the work. And so I can really speak to their their trauma. Occasionally, we get some people who are really anxious or, or attached. That's there too. But but you can see it really clearly and, and help them kind of navigate that in a, in a healthy and unique way. Through your religious practices, your time in the monastery, you talk in your TEDx talk about three key wisdom practices and how you've translated them into our financial lives. Talk about what those wisdom practices are and and how does that play out in dealing with our finances? Yeah, I mean, so there there's sort of three those three things are contemplation, compassion, and then action. That I think we need to if you bring those three things to your financial life, contemplation, compassion, and action. And so contemplation is just going deep inside yourself. Does you realize that the spiritual journey really isn't outward, it's inward. There's this kind of turning inward into yourself that needs to happen. Meditation is great. Prayer is great. Many, many tools for that. But you, you really need to look inward and find that, that deep inner connection inside yourself. And that's where your trauma lies. That's where, that's where all the darkness is inside of you. And you need to kind of tease that out and, and pull it out of yourself. And that's where the compassion comes in. Like you need to see it, acknowledge it, find its origins. What's your origin story of that trauma, and really do that psychological work. And then the spiritual side, of course, is bringing compassion to it, and then being able to forgive yourself most of all, and forgive all of the. To realize that the people who traumatized you or the circumstances that traumatized you were also the product of trauma. Like it's this infinite chain of pain. And the only way to overcome it is to forgive. Uh, you know, uh, there was a great line Lily Tomlin said. You know, forgiveness means giving up all hope for a better past. Right? You mm-hmm. gotta, you gotta let it go. 
And then, of course, you have to take action, right? You have to then, and the, I, I have the what I call the holy trinity of finance, which is which is earning, saving, and investing, right? So you need to then take action to make sure you're earning enough, you're saving appropriately, and and you're investing to to build up your financial future. So that's the rough that's the rough framework. I want to stick on this compassion piece for a moment because I think self compassion is so important. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about the act of forgiving yourself. What what has that looked like in your life and how does that play out? Hmm. That's a hard one because it's maybe the hardest one, right? Because for me, what that looks like is and I, I, I see this I've seen this in others. You know, in, in my Christian tradition, in and again, a, a very ecumenical, open to all traditions, it's it's not I'm not here to push anything. I'm just saying this is my my path. But in in Christianity, there's a lot about forgiveness of others, and I think for me, what that see, forgiveness starts by forgiving other people first. And for me, it was realizing that you kind of got to forgive all of reality itself for the way it is, and then maybe you can forgive yourself next. Like if, if the whole world is deserving of love and compassion, if everyone else is deserving of love and compassion, then then maybe you are too, and and that for me was the path but it's a hard one because it means letting go of your shame it means letting go of your anger for me it was anger that was the problem shame first anger but the anger was like so deep it was really hard to root that anger out and i'm not 100 percent free of it but 90 percent, maybe better than i was and so it's going to manifest in a lot of different ways but that it's the for me the anger was projected outward. I was I was projecting my inner anger outward at the world and other people and what whatever and and so. But you gotta. <laughs> the hard part is is you gotta see it, and you gotta feel it, and you gotta acknowledge it, and you gotta stop avoiding it. Like for me, it's just the money avoidance and the anger and shame avoidance were kind of all tied together. And so, so that was for me what had to happen, and then practice the art of forgiveness to myself. Because it's, I mean, I just grew up with so much shame. I, I was just ashamed to even exist. So that was that was tough. That was tough. In the introduction to this episode, I stole a line from your TED talk. I asked if you were in therapy with your money, what would it say to you, and what would you say to it? Talk, Doug, about how you feel today. What is your relationship with money like? Um, <laughs> Is it much more comfortable? Is it uncomfortable at times? It's still uncomfortable at times. I and mean, that's the funny thing about it. Like, it's not perfect, but it's so much better than it was. Like, you know, like I say, at least my money and I were on, were on speaking terms, at least, you know, we're, we're, we have a relationship where before there was no, it was so disconnected from it. I, you know, I still hate paying my bills. I still hate <laughs> doing my budget. I, you know, I, it's still, I, I sit down and I look at my budget and it's like this little pit in my stomach kind of goes, but I do it, right? So the, the it isn't so much that I don't have emotional stuff come up around money, but I can work through it and I have been able to build a really comfortable financial life for myself and use that, I think, I hope in a, in a way that makes my family better and makes my community better and certainly my own life. So it, it isn't so much about being perfect and and having it all figured out it's about for me moving forward and just getting better every day and a little bit and a little bit and so that's kind of where i'm at and and it's good and i've got a great life so 
but these these money issues don't just disappear magically. It doesn't just go away. You just get better at at overcoming it and not being letting that those emotional stuff when it comes up derail you. I'm going to ask you to do something difficult here. Try putting your logic and your mind aside for a moment. When we're talking about your heart, your soul, does money feel like a force of good or a force of evil? Good. There is no good. pause there. There is no There's pause, no pause at all. there. Yeah. Well, well, this is a great. This was another epiphany I had in the monasteries. Like, well, all my, you know, my friends and all these religious people are like, well, we got to help the poor. We got to help the poor. We got to help the the disadvantaged, the marginalized, the the oppressed. And it's like, well, what's the cure for poverty, dumbass? <laughs> Wealth. The only cure for poverty is money. Right. It's good. It's ultimately a force for it's more good. I mean, everything it, it's sort of neutral, right? The, the the simple answer is money is morally neutral. It's what we make of it, right? But it's done more good in the history of civilization than 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 poor than ill, right? Do you really want to go back to rubbing sticks and building fires and and you know the hunter gatherer life isn't exactly we romanticize the the good old days. Everyone's like, let's go back to the good old days when there was no money. It's like Really, you want to? <laughs> uh, really, that that that's what you want to go back to. You know, I, I love Woody Allen's line. He said, "I don't want to go back to any era where where there wasn't Novocaine." <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> that, it was brutal. It was nasty. It was it was ugly. So overall, money is the tool that has allowed civilization to advance, and that advancement is not come without terrible costs to our environment. To uh, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to defend all the or ignore all the negative externalities that we have with our, our society like they're very real and they're very devastating but they're so much better than what we we had before so so ultimately i think it's good you know when i asked that question i said you know the of the doug Lynham today right is it a force of good or evil i mean good just came out of your mouth instantaneously compare that to what you would have said when you were a teenager would the answer have been the same no way Absolutely not. I would have just said money's the root of all root of all evil. I just really believe it because it was it was such it, that. But I didn't. I I was a kid, you know. I had one very limited perspective, and and that was how I felt. But all I saw was corporate greed. All I saw, again, I, I saw all the negatives, but I wasn't really seeing the positives. Right? I, I wasn't able to kind of open my eyes a little bit and understand that. The trauma that people have, money money can amplify your trauma, but you take away the money, the trauma's still there, and now you're poor and you're traumatized. Like mm-hmm. that isn't a better that's not a better path. Like I'd rather have traumatized parents with money than traumatized parents without money. And I maybe I see this with my my fiance. I'm I'm getting married in October. And mm-hmm. and she grew up just the opposite. She grew up in this in a fairly poor family in Louisiana, you know, back at I, I, I tease her. I tease her about growing up in a swamp. That's not really true. <laughs> but she had all the trauma and no money. And that was a lot harder. Like, so the, the trauma piece is the problem, not the money. So tell us what your life looks like today and your role as a money manager. Who are your clients? What do you do for them? What What do you think? Where has this brought you as a career path? 
Yeah, you know, so I I now work mostly with high net worth clients. You know, we do environmentally and socially responsible investing, and and we help people you know manage their money, do financial planning. You know, it's it's kind of all the basics just to help people have a secure financial future and invest their money in ethical ways. And it's been great. It's just I love it. You know, we manage about a quarter billion in assets, so that's kind of kind of what we do. Is is you know, I, I was mostly working with poor people in the monastery, and now I'm working mostly with wealthy people. And I, I enjoy both. I still do a lot of pro bono work with people who need it, but to really help people use their wealth in a in an help make their money a force for good. Like really, that's that's the whole point. Is how do we? You've got all this money now. How do we make it a force for good, both in in not just on the investment side, but also in your personal life? Like, how do we meet your goals? How do we help you serve your community? And a lot of it is like, how do you give it away? How do you spend it? How do you? What are you going to do to to use this in an, in a really ethical way? So those are fun conversations to have. It's like it's, I really enjoy it. It's great. <laughs> Well, Doug, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show. As I listen to your evolution, it makes me think about this idea of when we grow up with money trauma, we see money as a goal, either something, a goal to hold on to tightly or, or a goal to avoid. But ultimately, when our mindset changes and we start dealing with that trauma, we see more money as a tool, not positive, not negative, not good, nor evil. It's a tool to achieve those things of our choosing. And if we choose to, we can take that tool and do real good with it. And I think that's really clear from your story. I wanted to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what is up next in your life and where can people find you if they want to know more? Sure. You can find me, best ways at my website for my company, longviewassetmanagement.com. Longviewassetmanagement.com. Lots of resources there. And what's next? Well, I'm getting married in October. That's kind of cool. And I've got my next book coming out is going to be right on this topic of money and trauma. It's called Tame Your Money Monsters. It's going to use a tool called the Enneagram, which is a psychological assessment tool and merging that with money and help people really have a robust tool for digging into their money their money issues and how do they overcome the their money attachment and anxiety or their money avoidance. So that's the next book. This has been the Earn and Invest Podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Doug Lynham. That's a wrap. All right, I'm keeping the audio going just so we can chat. So tell me what we didn't talk about. Like, I, I, I love your story, first and foremost, before you answer that. I love your story, and I love this arc of where it led you, because I think a lot of us are stuck in our money traumas and just don't know how to get out. So tell me, were there things that we didn't talk about that you wish we did? Not really. I mean, there's um, there's lots we could talk about, but I, I don't... Uh, so are we still recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, and do you want to use any of this or do you? So I generally do keep it going and use it as an after show. But if there are things you don't want to talk about, I can always cut them out. Even if you want to tell me about them, I can just cut them out or All we right. can leave them to later. I can always so, hit the stop. After that. So I'll. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market 
and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. <laughs> 